0: Well, good evening once again. We're at a particular point, I think. Are you able to hear me? Is the microphone working out there? You can hear me? Good. Can you hear me now? We won't go there, right? Uh, This week, we've been hopefully sensing in an increasing way that God is up to something. God's got this. And one of the interesting ways that has been true in terms of when God shows up, is when darkness seems to be creeping in more and more aggressively. And the other thing which is so significant is that God demonstrates he's got this by calling people who are the least likely to become the primary ambassadors he's going to use to make a difference. One of the scriptures... Early on in in, in my uh, rather uh, not particularly glorious academic journey in high school, uh, <clears throat> I graduated uh, in, in Canada. We use percentages. You have to have 60 percent to go on to the next grade. Uh, my last percentage uh, in uh, grade 12 was 13 percent. So I did not do particularly well. Uh, my high school guidance counselor had called me into the office, as I mentioned, and said, you know, you're, you're not going to make it. Uh, you're too stupid to be in school. Uh, I've had this carnal need. I, my sanctification is not complete yet. <clears throat> uh, and unfortunately, now he's passed on to whatever his reward is. But when I got my PhD, one of the first things I wanted to do was to go back up to Timmins, find that guy, stick it under his nose and say, nye, 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 nye. <clears throat> you don't know everything. But the Lord's now delivered me from that. That's <laughs> Or based on just what I shared, maybe not, right? I mean that's, maybe not. But Jim and Marion were in the business, this couple that took in over 60 of us off the streets during their ministry, of believing that God uses uh, those that in the eyes of the world are weak, incomplete, incompetent, whatever words you want to use to describe, Uh, the least, the left, and the lost of society. And and one of those scriptures that they often uh, quoted to me, uh, and and at times I'm not sure I fully appreciated its contextualization, but, uh, you know, Marian would say, well, I guess God has this treasure in earth and vessels, so that the excellence of the power might be of him. And the other scripture, which is so significant here, is this idea that God often chooses the foolish things, at least those things that appear to be foolish, to confound the wise. And so, you know, I'm privileged to be, I guess, one of those foolish things, and painfully aware, particularly during my teen years and in years following, of the earthen vessel nature. We, we often think that for God to use us, somehow we've got to become perfected. But the truth is, We don't have to be perfected for God to use us. We have to be in the process of being perfected, that God then can use us and work in us. And and so when we were called into ministry and it became clear that the privilege God was going to give Nancy and me over now over five decades of our ministry was primarily, not all the time, but primarily to invest deeply in those that God was calling, and often to look for those who others would say, hmm, not sure. Hmm, doesn't have all the natural talent. Hmm, not quite sure that this is going to work. When I uh, uh, went to Asbury Theological Seminary, Nancy and I, in 1983, to join the administration and the faculty, one of my colleagues, was Dr. Chuck Hunter, and he was the founding dean of the East Stanley Jones School of Evangelism and World Missions. And we had just gotten a sizable gift from a donor, uh, multiple millions of dollars that allowed us then to create this, this school of evangelism and world missions. And Chuck Hunter was a tremendous storyteller, and one of my favorite stories that so motivates me in terms of the fact that God is up to an every generation when it comes to a fullness of time, he's getting ready to dispatch the most unlikely instruments, the most unlikely vessels to ultimately accomplish his purposes. And so he tells the story of a a Methodist Episcopal minister assigned to a very small uh, community in the north uh, named of C.C. McCabe. And just as McCabe was taking his ministry Uh, the the Civil War broke out, and he became a chaplain in the North. But just a short time into the war, he was captured and imprisoned in Richmond, Virginia, uh, in a, a southern prison. And there he thought perhaps his ministry was over. But God began to work in him, and slowly, just one by one, he was able to minister the gospel and saw not only Uh, captured northern soldiers come to Christ, but even many southern soldiers make a profession of faith. When the war was finally over and he was released, he, he sensed deeply that the only way to heal a nation so broken, so divided, so utterly under the darkest cloud in our history, was the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus had to get back on the scene. And so rather than take an appointment, he became an itinerant evangelist and began working across uh, the northern states, uh, uh, Michigan, uh, Illinois, uh, New York State, working around, and uh, each place he would go, he would look for a place where there was no church. And he would hold a street meeting, much like Charles Wesley did, John Wesley did, back in the early days of the Wesleyan revival. And out of that, people would essentially come to Christ, and they would plant a little church. And so he began planting churches across the land. At that same time, though, because there had been such a crisis of values and such a crisis of, of morality in culture, uh, the whole concept of, of agnosticism, uh, of paganism, of, of not believing that there was a God, because if there had been a God, why didn't he prevent this? We lost more lives during the Civil War, I'm told, than in most of all of our wars since then combined. Brother against brother, family against family, terrible time. And so there was this proponent of agnosticism by the name of Robert G. Ingersoll, who just believed if there was a God, he didn't care. And so he began to publish articles in the Chicago newspaper at the time. I don't know what it was, was the Tribune or what it was at that particular time but just basically condemning religion and basically saying that religion was going to die. And he wrote a very scathing article that C.C. McCabe ended up reading. And the article basically said by Robert G. Ingersoll that the church was dying across the land and pretty soon there would be no churches left and that that would be a very, very good thing for what would be next for society for American society, to to shake off anything religious, because obviously religion hadn't helped us, and religion had played a role in his mind in much of the Civil War, and so it would be a very good thing. Well, CeCe McCabe was quite incensed by this, and so he got to a little town where there was a telegraph station, and he sent a telegraph that went something like this. Dear Bob, stop. My name is C.C. McKay. Stop. I am an evangelist. Stop. And we are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ across the land. Stop. As a matter of fact, much to probably your dismay, we are seeing one new church a day being planted. And by God's grace, it's going to be two. Stop. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Stop. And so the paper picked this up because Ingersoll wanted to play off it. And before you know it, over the next several weeks, <clears throat> there was this exchange going back and forth that then the paper carried and recorded where Ingersoll would respond and C.C. And McCabe would respond. And out of it came this sense of optimism and excitement among Christians. And as Christians are, are prone to do, they came up with a folk song, And the folk song basically told the story. And it went something like this. The the infidels, a motley band, in council met and said, The church is dying across the land, and soon it will be dead. But suddenly a message came that caught them with dismay. All hail the power of Jesus' name. We're building to a day. And the chorus went... We're building to a day, dear Bob. We're building to a day. All hail the power of Jesus' name. We're building to a day. It's that kind of anticipation and expectation. Here, a relatively unknown individual, one that uh, perhaps wasn't recognized as having a lot of ability and a lot of talent, was somebody that God would use at that moment, that Kairos moment, that Kronos moment, in order to accelerate the gospel. What came out of that, as you may well be aware if you know anything about the church history following the Civil War and up to the beginning of the 20th century, was some of the greatest moves of the Holy Spirit in the history of the Western church. Revival upon revival upon revival. Taylor University is about to celebrate its 175th anniversary this year. It was founded back in 1846, right about the time of this whole Civil War thing, and was motivated out of a desire to have a place where we could all hail the power of Jesus' name, Bob, and build to a day. And so many, many Christian institutions came out of this particular movement, out of the revivals. There's a story told, and and Chuck was a storyteller and didn't always footnote uh, fully So I don't know how much of this is actual and how much of it is evangelistic, as we like to say, kind of stretching things a little bit. But he says the story with McCabe and Ingersoll didn't stop there. He said, a little bit later, some 40 or 50 years later, it turned out that the grandson of C.C. McCabe was pastoring a little church in this little town. And lo and behold the grandson of Robert G. Ingersoll was now living in that town. And the little boys, the great grandchildren of these two men had got come together and become friends. And the great grandson of Cece McCabe decided to invite the great grandson of Robert G. Ingersoll to Sunday school. And so he started coming to Sunday school and CC McCabe's grandson realized, okay, well, this could be a bit of a problem. He knew the history. So he went to Robert G. Ingersoll, are you following me? Robert G. Ingersoll's grandson and said, "Look, our boys are friends. Would you Is it okay if they go to Sunday school together? Okay, that's fine, not a problem. Go ahead and do it. Before you know it, this great-grandson of Robert G. Ingersoll was so taken by the gospel. Now this is Chuck telling this story. I hope it's true. I really do. because It's a good one. Don't you love it when a good story is also true? I hope this one is true. And he said, came to faith in the little Sunday school class. And then he had been taught that he should be baptized. And so C.C. McCabe's grandson had to go back to Robert G. Ingersoll's grandson and say, your boy has you know, just professed faith in." and uh, he wants to be baptized in, you know, I'll do it, but I want your permission. And the grandson of C.C. McCabe said, well, yeah, that's." Or, uh, Robert G. Ingersoll said, that, that's fine, go ahead and do it. So here's the story. So it comes that Sunday, the little boy is baptized, the other little boy is baptized, and someone says, I hope this is true, they could hear in the distance an angel band singing, We're building to a day, dear Bob. We're building to a day. All hail the power of Jesus' name. We're building to a day. As I said, I hope that's a true story, because it does illustrate, I think, an ultimate truth. And that is, God will have his way, and he works in some of the most unique ways to accomplish his purposes. We can't figure out often how God is going to do what he's going to do. And how he does it is through whom he does it. God always works through those that he has decided from the foundation of time can be instruments of his to make a difference in the world. One of those characters that's so unlikely is the Peter, the big fisherman. And when you go to the scriptures, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, uh, turn to Luke chapter 5, you find that, that Peter is one of these personalities that would be the least likely you would want to admit to seminary in order to study to lead the gospel movement. He was a big, brash guy. We get insights throughout the stories of about Peter's life uh, through uh, other uh, oral histories that have passed down. Uh, he was not someone you would have chosen. Uneducated, basically uh, a person who made his living fishing, a pretty successful fisherman, We believe he had probably a a fleet of three, four, or five fishing boats, and so he was somewhat prosperous. But one day, Jesus was coming through Galilee, and uh, a crowd formed, and uh, Jesus needed to speak to the crowd, and, and he didn't know how to do that from the shore, so he tapped Peter and the other fishermen with him and said, can I use your boat? Can you kind of take me out? a little ways here, so that I can speak to the crowd. Those of us who are in communications know that water amplifies, and so the, the hillsides surrounding, surrounding uh, the Sea of Galilee are almost saucer-like in their shape, and so anyone standing out in the water would be like they were talking over an electronic microphone. That sound would carry, and so Jesus don't. We're, we're not sure what he even said. It's not even recorded, because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story, as it's recruited, recorded in Luke 5, is that Jesus decides to demonstrate where the real authority is in life, not in being a successful fisherman. And so he says, push out a little further and put your nets over the side. It's the middle of the day. You don't catch fish. They fish usually at night. And Peter says, Lord, you don't understand. We fished all night and caught nothing. And... Uh, Jesus says, well, put your nets out anyway. And Peter, and it's a big job putting out these nets. Big job. So they put them out, and you know the story. There's this miraculous catch, which is so overwhelming that it even gets the big fisherman's attention that he is overwhelmed by this. And he says, oh, Lord, depart from me. I am an evil man. I'm not worthy, because he had recognized in Jesus's control over the natural environment, doing something that all of his life he had never seen before, that he was in the in the company of a righteous person, one who was in touch with God, who could order creation. And his own sense of insecurity said, please leave me. I, I don't deserve here. I, I'm not a righteous man. And Jesus says, good you recognize it because that's the kind of person I can use. It's someone who recognizes their own inadequacy, their own need of righteousness. And Jesus says to him, yeah, I'm gonna use you, but no longer will you be a fisher of fish. I'm going to make you a fisher of man. And so they come ashore, And they leave the boat. They must have left all the fish. Uh, What a snake that would have been if somebody didn't come and and, uh, pick them up. But it says immediately as the boat came to shore, those that were with Peter, and we have a list of those people uh, in Scripture, left their nets and followed Jesus. And so for the next multiple months, next couple of years, Peter is there beside Jesus walking with him, and blowing it over and over again, multiple times. And we don't need to rehearse all of those. Most of you are familiar with those times when when uh, uh, Peter basically uh, wants to prevent Jesus from doing something, and Jesus has to turn to him and say, get you behind me, Satan. And, and Peter decides uh, he doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross, and so he grabs a sword and lops off the ear of uh, the, the high priest's servant uh, and Jesus has to stop him there. It's just like every time Peter turns around, he just doesn't get it. He's a bull in the Christian china shop, right? He just is constantly making mistakes. But God has a plan to use this one that would seem the least likely for the ultimate purposes of the kingdom. And so day after day, week after week, month after month, He's working with people, working, because he can see the finished product. He doesn't see the awkward, incomplete, bullish individual. He sees the one upon whom the gospel of Jesus Christ will be built into the new world, and that he will become, in essence, the corner of the building of the new church that Jesus decides to um, create. And it's it's all going pretty well until that night of the betrayal. <clears throat> that night when Peter once again tries to fix it by standing, stepping in front of Jesus to keep him from being taken to trial, cutting the ear off. Jesus has to say, don't do that, Peter. They take him away. and And, and Peter follows at a distance. And as Jesus is being publicly humiliated, publicly tried, um, Peter is is kind of cowering out in the courtyard, and he's listening to all of this. And, uh, and, And a little girl basically says, you're one of them. And Peter says, well, not me. No, I'm not one of them. She hears his Galilean accent. Ah, yes, I know it. You're, you're one of them. You're, you're one of those followers of this man. And a second time, Peter says, not me. No, no, you got the wrong person. The third time, she says, oh, no, I know it. You're one of those followers of Jesus. And this time, Peter curses. He uses God's name in vain. Okay? should know better. And just as he does... Jesus would remind him that just earlier, when he said, Lord, all of these other turkeys may leave you, that's just a rough translation from the Greek, all of these other turkeys may leave you, but you can count on me. I will never leave you. I won't forsake you. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me. And on that third denial, the rooster crows and this incredible sense of failure floods over Peter. And from that moment on, Peter is in a different relationship to the disciples. And he, he does show up, he's, he's, we're not sure if he's there at the crucifixion, it's not real clear, we know a couple of the disciples are. One of the most moving moments uh, in the uh, crucifixion story is where John is standing beside Mary, and Jesus, and by the way, those of you that were in the um, teaching this morning where we were talking about the importance of family, before Jesus completes his salvation responsibility of dying on the cross for you and me, he first takes care of his family. As the oldest, Joseph is no longer there. We assume he died. And so Mary is counting on the eldest of the boys. That's Jesus to care for her. He's now being crucified. And before he says it is finished and gives up the ghost and completes the sacrifice on the cross, he looks down and he sees John and Mary standing together. And he says this. He says to John, behold your mother. And he says to his mother, behold your son. He makes that assignment. One of those Wonderful reinforcing realities of how important it is that we understand that our first ministry that God gives us, whether we're called to be ministers or not, is to minister to the family that God has entrusted to us. If Jesus would take care of the family before he completed his ministry, how much more should we, who are entrusted with the care for children and family, take care of them in the gospel? But Peter's not there. We're not sure where he is. He does show up um, with a group of disciples. Mary comes running back, and, and uh, uh, after she's realized that, that the, the tomb is empty and, and, and uh, they don't know where they've taken the Lord, uh, she has this revelation. Uh, there's this revelation to the ladies, and, and one of them breaks into the upper room where they're hiding for fear of the Jews and announces, I, I've seen Jesus. Don't you love that song? Sandy Patty, you know, I've just seen Jesus. Wow, that just raises, you know, your your sense of of joy to such heights. She's just seen Jesus, and Peter and John run, and 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 they outrun what one outruns the other, and they get there, and they realize he's not there. But but Peter seems now to be just outside. He's always on the outer edges of things, and even when Jesus shows up in the upper room, uh. And uh, there, there is this sense that, that, that Peter is, is just not a part of this. And then in the last uh, revealing of Jesus in Jerusalem, he, he makes an interesting statement. He says, I want you to go to Galilee. I go before you into Galilee. But this is what he says. Tell my disciples and Peter. Isn't it interesting? Tell my disciples and Peter that I go to Galilee before them. And so Peter returns back to his hometown. They're up there in Galilee, not sure just exactly what's going to happen. Uh, Peter's finally decided okay, I've sat around long enough. The boats are still there. Let's push out into the deep. Because earlier in Luke 5, when he was asked to put the nets over, he said to Jesus, You know, we fished all night, Lord, and caught nothing. This is kind of a useless task. I'm not sure it's something I should do. But they go out at night figuring that they're going to catch some fish. They fish all night and catch nothing. It's deja vu all over again, isn't it? And they then see a glow on the shoreline and they can smell fish cooking. And there's this Character, if you're there in Galilee, early in the morning, there's always a mist and a haze, so you can't see clearly. They weren't out too far, the, the scripture says uh, in John 21, but, but fundamentally, they couldn't see, and there's this voice, children, interesting, uses that word. Children, have you got any fish? And they yell back, no, no, we haven't caught any fish. And the voice says, put your net on the right side. An interesting use of the word, on the right side. What well, we got to lose? They put the net on the right side. And deja vu all over again. There is this wonderful draft of fishes. This time somebody counts them. 157. And like good fishermen, they were 157 big fish. And they got bigger with every telling, I'm sure. 157 big fish. And John says, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter is stripped only to basically a loincloth, a loincloth while he's out there. And he does something very interesting. He puts all of his clothes back on and jumps into the water and wades ashore. You see what he was doing? he still is feeling uh, exposed. Remember the scripture in Isaiah? I am undone. Uh, I, I, I'm fully seen. I, I'm embarrassed to be seen. And so he puts all of his clothes on, and he wades back ashore, and then begins this dialogue. It's hard for us to understand this communication between Jesus and Peter. But Jesus is wanting to prepare Peter for the most important leadership responsibility in the history of the Christian church. He's going to lead the disciples into the challenge of fulfilling the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Jesus knows that the day the Feast of Pentecost is coming and that there's going to be a miraculous stirring that God is going to cause that will cause all the people to come running. And he's going to have to have Peter stand up and deliver, and from a homiletics vantage point, by the way, one of the most profound messages that demonstrates that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. But before that, they've got to get the relationship straightened out. And so you get this dialogue. Jesus turns to Peter after they've been having their breakfast and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now there's some debate uh, among the, the commentators uh, about what the these refers to. Uh, some think it might have been Jesus pointing out his Peter's earlier affirmation that all these other turkeys will leave you, but I love you enough, I'm going to stay with you. And so some believe that he was saying, do you really love me? There were seven of them, and Peter made the seventh. Do you really love me more than these six. For me, I don't think that would be the way Jesus would do it. I I think what Jesus was really saying, and other commentators agree with me, and I love to read only those commentators that agree with me, uh, is, is that the these that he was referring to were the fish. You see, I'm going, if you read it clearly in the Greek, I'm going back to fishing. That's what he said. I'm going back to fishing. This disciple thing. This isn't working out for me. And so Jesus says, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yeah, I love you more than these. And Jesus says, well, okay, uh, you can feed my land. Uh, And uh, a second time, Jesus says to him, uh, can we revisit this? Do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, I love you more than these fish." And Jesus says, okay, then you can care for my sheep, tend my sheep, watch over them. And then the third time, Jesus says it again, Peter, do you really love me more than these? And Peter is grieved, and we'll talk about why in just a moment. Uh, And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, okay, you can feed my lambs, tend my sheep, but I'm also going to allow you to feed my sheep. There's some foreshadowing here of the fact that he would be delivering the manna from heaven, the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself, uh, to the crowds if he would just basically come into that fresh relationship with Jesus. Now, for those of us who who were forced to study Greek, um, there, there is some value in knowing the, the, the sequencing here uh, Jesus' use of uh, the word love the first two times is the highest form of love in the Greek. Agapeo or agape, do you love me with self-sacrificing love? Are you, are, do you love me enough that you would give up everything for me? And uh, some of the translations, not all of them, but some of the translations show that, that uh, Peter's response, and I love Peter's honesty and transparency. He said, well, you know, I can't quite come up to that level but I will phileo you, not phile the fish, but phileo is a Greek word for like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I love you like a brother. Okay, that's fine. Second time, Jesus says to him, Peter, do you really agapeo me? Love me to the depths that you'll give up anything and everything in order to serve me. And uh, Peter says, well, yeah, Lord, I, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. The third time, some of the commentators believe, Jesus changed the love word. And he said, Peter, do you really love me like a brother? Comes down to Peter's level. He realizes that Peter isn't ready to come up to this level. And so he comes down to Peter's level, right where he is. And he says, yes, Lord. I owe you. I love you like a brother. And Jesus said, in that event, you can be involved. I'll take you where you are. Isn't that a wonderful message? You don't have to clean up, uh, gussy up, you know, uh, become more than you are. I'll take you, what's the old gospel song say? Just as I am, without one plea. I'll take you, Peter, right where you are. As long as where you are you'll give me all you can give me. And if all you can give me right now is phileo love, then I'll take it, it's enough. There's another, uh, and this one's hard to validate because we have incomplete understandings of some of the cultural um, contextualizations uh, in that particular time in Jewish history. Uh, But again, some commentators uh, basically believe that what Jesus was doing with the three public confessions of love was canceling Peter's three public denials that demonstrated his lack of love. And again, this is, this is hard to verify, but again, it's one of those, like uh, Chuck's stories, I hope it's true, uh, that when a man wanted to divorce a woman uh, in that particular time period, all he had to do was to go into the public square and say out loud, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And at that point, the divorce was complete. So there's some who believe, based on that assumption, that what Peter did out there in the public square was to essentially divorce himself from Jesus. And so in order for that marriage to be reinstated, the one who had said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, had to go back into that public square and publicly declare, I love you, I love you, I love you. Isn't that an interesting story? Boy, I hope that's true, because it just warms the cockles of my heart to think that there would be that kind of tie. Now, sometimes, again, we preachers stretch too far and we get beyond what we can fully uh, uh, support and accurately footnote. But if that's true, it's a wonderful picture of the fact that God takes the least, takes those who basically don't seem to be best prepared. And if I'd have been putting the team together, probably would have gone with John. You know, nice guy. Jesus loved him, uh, seemed to be fairly stable, wasn't the bull in the china shop kind of personality. Uh, and I probably would have appointed him to be the chief operating officer of the band of disciples. But no, Jesus saw something in Peter. Because from that point on, from the day of Pentecost on, Peter is in a brand new relationship with Jesus. And he's now empowered. And he does things like when they go up to the temple to pray. And he's involved in a healing. It's an amazing kind of thing, what happens to Peter in terms of his giftedness and his ability. And and those who knew Peter, I can just hear him. Wow. Gotta be God. (laughs) I sure know Peter when. Can't be Peter. This is a different guy. And nobody can be that different unless they've been transformed by a supernatural power. And so the very fact that God would choose to fill an earthen vessel with the most precious treasure really is a statement of the fact that in the end, all honor and glory, power and dominion must belong to God that we cannot touch his glory. And Peter knew that for the rest of his life. As a matter of fact, a tradition says that when Peter would finally give up his life and you know, the rest of the story uh, in, uh, in john twenty one uh, Jesus tells him that he's going to basically have to give up his life. Sooner or later he's got to get to agapeo love, uh, you know the self-sacrificing commitment. And uh, you know Peter contemplates that a little bit and looks around and there's there's the teacher's pet, John over there, the teacher's pet. and he says, well, okay, uh, yeah, what about him?" Is, is he going to have to do the same thing? And Jesus, again, uh, has to kind of, well, we don't let teachers do that anymore, smack him up the side of the head, but kind of grab him by the lapels, I guess, and, and, and say, you know, if it's my will that he never dies, what is that to you? You follow me. And as Peter begins to experience, particularly on the day of Pentecost, the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, the transformation begins with rapid pace so that he can become the man that God would use to launch the greatest movement in the history of the world, the gospel message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting love. And that God who so loved, loved with Agapeo love, sacrificing love, whose son was willing to come and die on the cross for us. In these five decades that Nancy and I have been privileged to be in ministry, uh, much of that ministry has been um, privileged to be investing in those whom God is calling to service. And as I said, it it has amazed me when you when you live 50 years and and you've got some history of people you've worked with. And, you know, I run into some of my uh, former students. I can't believe they're as old as they are because I don't feel I am that old. You know, I find out that a Taylor student who I gave a diploma to uh, is now 25 years older. That's pretty sobering, you know, to me in terms of reality. Right. Uh, Time passes so quickly. But the reality is, as we look back across time, and if you live long enough, you begin to see those, and I'm not suggesting any of the students who went to tailor from here, weren't the brightest and the best, okay? Uh, because they were, I just want to assure you of that. But we also had some that weren't the brightest bulb on the tree, you know? Weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, the lights were on, but they weren't necessarily home. The elevator didn't go all the way to the top floor. Whatever term you want to use, right? Who God has used miraculously. I still, to this day, hold the record for the single largest number of student dismissals in the history of Spring Arbor College. Uh, as dean of students, I kicked out of school in one day seven students. Okay? Record. I don't think it's ever been broken. I hope it hasn't been broken. i kind of proud of that, to be honest with you. no. In the next 12 to 18 to 24 months, six of those, because of that stern discipline, came to themselves, and as a result, these who were dealing drugs and using drugs on our campus essentially came to the Lord and became missionaries going around the world, and pastors and youth leaders. There is one I never heard from, a very angry young man. 10 years or so later, I don't remember the exact timing, my phone rings and there's a voice on the other end of the line. And he introduces himself. I'm so-and-so. We'll not give the name to protect the guilty. And he says, do you remember me? I said, oh yeah, I remember you. He said, Dean Gartzen, I hated you. I've hated you for 10 years. Because you kicked me out of school, I've gone through all kinds of problems and difficulties. My life has been a living hell, and it's all because of you, I thought. But I'm calling you today not to say that to you, but to say just recently, I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I realized that God had planned to use this, which looked like the most terrible thing that could happen in my life, to turn me to himself. And I want you to know that God's calling me into full-time Christian service. Wow. I would have given you 10 to one odds. That this guy would have been somewhere buried in, a, in the Bowery somewhere with no life possible, except but God made the difference. When I got ready to go off to Bible school, having flunked out of high school, 13% grade point average, um, knowing that I was going to have to get a C my first semester in Bible school because I was being let in on, I mean, very significant probation, right? And uh, I, uh, I was nervous. I didn't know that I could do it. I i, I, I felt like I was going to have to use my brain. My guidance counselor told me I was too stupid to use my brain. And, and so I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So Jim and Marion, as I left the house to go on to Lawrence Park College, just outside of Toronto Port Credit outside of Toronto handed me a Bible. And it was my first Bible that was really mine. Uh, You know, I'd bored the Bible and that kind of thing, but Jim and Marion had bought a Bible for me. And in the front fly leaf, say that quickly, the front fly leaf, they had written this wonderful exhortation from Paul to Timothy. Study, Marion was always pushing the importance of study. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I looked at that and thought, okay, you know, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, I'll give it a shot to study. And, and then, uh, Marion, uh, Jim and Marion, as I mentioned, were song evangelists. Uh, Jim sang a lot of solos, he played the accordion and the piano. Um, Jim and Marion sang together. But Marion's primary contribution was she had a tremendous memory and she memorized uh, poems. So, those of you who are old enough to remember the old fashioned song evangelists, you know, they would sing two or three songs and then they would, you know, quote a poem of some kind and sing two or three more songs. And perhaps there was a story and then there would be another couple of songs and then there would be a poem. Well, Marion had the poem responsibility. And she was a very proper British lady, very proper. And uh, she delivered all of these poems, uh, dozens and dozens of them that she had memorized. And traveling from camp meeting to camp meeting, I heard them over and over again. And she said, David, I've got one more gift for you. She said, stand there. And so she stepped over in front of me and did what proper British ladies do when they're going to speak. And she said, one of the poems that I have been quoting all these years, and particularly during the years that you've been with me, has never been more real than it is basically in your life. And so she stepped back, held her hands properly. And she said, it was battered and scarred. And the auctioneer scarcely thought it worth his while to spend much time on the old violin but he held it up with a smile. One am I bidding, good friends, he cried, who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two? Two dollars and who'll make it three? Going once, going twice, but suddenly from the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow, and wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody soft and sweet, like a caroling angel sings. The music ceased. And the auctioneer said, as he held up the violin with the bowl, what am I bidding, good friends, he cried. Who will start the bidding for me? A thousand dollars, two thousand dollars. Who'll make it three, three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The crowd cheered, but some of them cried We don't understand what changed its worth. Soft came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with a life out of tune is battered and scarred by sin. He's auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A glass of wine, a mess of pottage, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes. And the foolish crowd can never quite understand the change that's brought and the worth that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. I can tell you folks, that beautiful, beautiful poem was all that I needed to trust that even though there was a lot of dust and the bow needed some tightening and things were out of tune, that if I would let the master touch me, that he would fulfill his promise that his treasure, even though in an earthen vessel, could ultimately be used for his glory. When you put something precious in an earthen vessel, particularly vessels made in that day, they would chip and crack. You see, the vessel wouldn't stay perfect all the time as it was used and went about its business. But when the cracks would occur, what was inside the vessel would ooze out and fill the cracks and be magnified against the crowd. And so I, I was thinking, I've I got to get perfect before God can use me. i got, I, I, you know, I got to get cleaned up, gussied up, uh, prayed up, saved, sanctified, petrified, whatever the uh, fides were that I needed to have done in my life before God could use me. But no, God started using me almost instantly to be a part of his gospel. Tonight, I'm convinced that there are people here that God desires for you to rediscover the fact that he has a plan that is yet to be fulfilled for you. Some of you are walking in that plan, and you feel so inadequate. You're thinking, wow, can God really use me? Some of you perhaps have been running away from that call for many, many years, thinking, you know, Lord, you know, like Moses said, you know, can you get somebody else? You know, is there somebody else that can do this? Because here are all my excuses for why I'm inadequate. Some of you have, I'm gonna say this directly in love. Some of us, some of you may have betrayed your calling. And for whatever reasons, you feel like you no longer have a place in the kingdom to serve God's purposes effectively. Peter becomes the wonderful truth, doesn't it? That no matter how far we've strayed away from God, you know, Lord, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. The paths of sin, no long I trod. Lord, I'm coming home. And if you've been a prodigal, tonight's the night where you can make a decision to turn toward him. And you know what you'll find? That as you turn toward him, he's already turn toward you. And much like the story of the prodigal son, the father wasn't standing back with his arms folded, saying, well, it's about time, son. The minute he saw on the horizon, the top of his son's head coming toward him, you know what he did? He ran, threw his arms around him. And so tonight, if Satan's sitting on your shoulder, and he's telling you, man, you've blown it, it's, it's too late for you. God doesn't want you back. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God is waiting for just the smallest sign that you're willing to turn from and turn toward him. And you know what you're going to find? If we were doing an altar service, before you got to the altar, you know, he'd already he thrown his arms around you. Because we live in incredible times times when God needs those who will serve him for the purpose of giving him all the honor, the glory, and the power. And while he will use dedicated, committed, talented people, most often in the history of the church, it's been the least likely that have become the most effective. So if you're feeling among the least likely, boy, have I got news for you. You're a prime candidate for this day and this time. Let's pray together. Father, what a season you've given us. We know that the world is getting darker, but that doesn't bother you because you've already begun to prepare. I I, am so encouraged as, as I have the privilege of working with the next generation of men and women in Bible college, and seminary, and Christian college settings, I am so excited by the men and women that you are touching and that you are selecting. And tonight, if there's someone here who, for whatever reasons, needs to be reawakened to the fact that you've still got a wonderful plan for their life, and no matter what journey they've been on, what pathways they have taken, no matter if they now feel like the, the rooster has crowed three times and it's over for them. That basically they will know by the power of the Holy Spirit that their time now has come. This is a keros, kronos moment for them. Some of us, Lord, have been walking in our call and we're weary tonight. Some of us need to be able to return, much like you did with Peter, to the original calling remind us tonight, if we're weary in our well-doing, if we've been serving you, but but we're wearing down and, and, and wearing out, would you restore unto us again the joy of what we felt when we first knew that you had singled us out to be your servants for this time and this day, for some who have delayed their calling, just feeling they're not ready, not yet prepared. If tonight's the night for them, Holy Spirit, you speak to them. And you allow them to have that relationship with you that will, like Peter, uh, people will stand back and say, wow, uh, I, I knew Dave when, <laughs> I knew Sue when. Certainly can't be Sue. Can't be Dave. It's got to be God. Allow him to fill you, even though you're an earthen vessel, trusting that when the hard times come and chips and cracks appear, that, that treasure which you have will become the means by which people will see that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. We're going to sing, I'm going to ask that you would stand. Uh, this is a pretty significant thing. So if you want to come forward, you can. We'll dismiss after we've sung, but uh, I'm going to remain here and I'm going to ask some of our clergy who are with us and some of our spiritual leaders, would you please remain with me? And if it's too awkward for you to kind of get out and come while we're singing, know that we'll be here for as long as it takes tonight. And if you wander off to your cabin and go get your free ice cream, and the Holy Spirit says, put down that ice cream, you need to be back here talking to somebody about the call on your life. Then know that we'll be here waiting for it. Now, I go to bed at 10. No, I'm just kidding. We will stay as long as the Lord begins to speak and to move. So, if you're able and you want to come while we're singing, that's fine. But know when we're finished, there will still be that opportunity for you to come and become that vessel that God can use in this day and age. And all of God's people say, Amen. Make me a song. Ooh. Mm-hmm. that for most of you tonight you understand none of us are exempted from the opportunity to give ourselves at the agapeo level to pay whatever price God would ask of us to be his witness where he has placed us for some it's in the factory for some it's in the cornfield for others it's in the educational setting for some uh, it's in uh, the community in terms of community service but every one of us has a call. And God is looking to and fro throughout the earth for those who will be willing to pay the price. Because I, I want to tell you something, it's going to be increasingly challenging to be a bold, wise, but bold witness for the truths of the gospel in the weeks and months and years that are coming before us. And so we've got to love him more than just like a brother. Okay. got to love him, agapeo, and willingness then to pay whatever price is necessary to be his faithful witness. And it may just be to one person. I don't think Mrs. Everest, I mentioned you to her last night, uh, or her to you last night. I'd like to mention you to her if I could do that. But here this first grade, second grade teacher had no idea that when she made that little costume for this little kid from a broken home. And because she had been bold in the public school system to ask us to recite the Lord's Prayer and to memorize the 23rd Psalm, that that would be the seed that God would use years later to touch my heart and life and cause me to make a commitment that would say, God, whatever the cost, whatever the price, I'm going to serve you. And so we're going to dismiss now tonight and... uh, As I said, if you'd like to come and share or pray, I'm going to ask again some of our uh, spiritual leaders, uh, men and women both, if you would just make yourself available. There'll be enough ice cream, I'm sure, uh, for you to go a little bit later. And if you'd like to come and pray, if you'd like to come and talk, if you'd like to come and say, Dave, that's a bunch of hooey. Uh, Do whatever you feel you're prompted to do. But know this, these are the times that God has set and he knew that you needed to be here in these times because you have the potential to be the vessel he needs in that situation where he has placed you to accomplish the ultimate truth that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. So now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding great what? Joy. Be honor, power, dominion, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said once again, Amen and Amen. Go in peace.